Hi everyone, Drew Road here with another fantastic episode for you on the Broken Brain Podcast. Today, we have Dr. Drew Ramsey on the podcast, helping us to completely change our thinking around treating mental health. Dr. Ramsey is one of the rising stars in the mental health world. He has his feet firmly planted in both the worlds of food, farming, and nutrition, but also in the worlds of academia, research, psychiatry at Columbia University. In this interview, we're going to be talking about the tremendous evidence and research out there on how food impacts our mood and how we can eat to beat depression. We'll also be talking about social isolation and loneliness and how important it is to use community and friendship to build resilience in our life. And lastly, we're going to be talking about the new model of treating mental health and how Dr. Drew Ramsey works with his patients using a combination of deep lifestyle interventions, psychotherapy, and medications, but not medications as the first or only resort for a patient. I think you're going to love this episode and Dr. Ramsey's take on the world of mental health. If you do love it, pop in to the Apple Podcast app on your iPhone and leave a review for the Broken Brain Podcast. It would mean the world to us. Okay, now on to my formal intro for Dr. Drew Ramsey. Welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast. I'm your host, Drew Perot, executive producer of the Broken Brain docuseries. Each week, we'll invite a new guest who we think can help you improve your brain health, feel better, and live your best life. Today's guest is a dear friend of mine, Dr. Drew Ramsey, who's also one of the stars of the Broken Brain docuseries. Dr. Drew Ramsey is a leading innovator in mental health, combining clinical excellence, nutritional interventions, and creative media. He's an assistant clinical professor of psychiatry at Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons and has an active practice in New York City. His work and writings have been featured by the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Huffington Post, the Lancet, NPR, which named him a kale evangelist, the Today Show, BBC, TEDx, and many, many more. He is the author of three books, Eat Complete, The 21 Nutrients That Fuel Brain Power, Boost Weight Loss, and Transform Your Health. He's also the author of 50 Shades of Kale and The Happiness Diet. His new e-course, Eat to Beat Depression, helps people maximize their brain health with every bite, and you can find a link for it in the show notes. Dr. Ramsey splits his time between New York City and rural Indiana, where he lives with his wife, children, and parents on his 127-acre organic farm. We start off today's episode by having Dr. Ramsey talk about what nutritional psychiatry is. Sure. So let's unpack that term, nutritional psychiatry. You know, it's new for a lot of people because it's a new term. And in nutritional psychiatry, first, I'm a general psychiatrist. So after medical school, I did a four-year residency focused on brain health and mental health at Columbia and learned the basics of how we take care of mental health conditions, what they are, psychopharmacology, psychotherapy. And and it was interesting. There really wasn't and there still really isn't much of a conversation about nutrition. Uh, and like all physicians, you know, we tell people, hey, you can just eat better and exercise more. But getting into the specifics of that is is really something that's reasonably new. And that's what nutritional psychiatry is all about. It's, it's about trying to understand how food relates to mental health and psychiatric conditions in, in all kinds of different ways, ranging from issues in our food that can increase our risk of mental illness or, or prevent us from getting better to understanding, for example, lots of our patients who take medications gain weight. Are there things that we can do a better job of in terms of helping them manage that and and manage those side effects? So nutritional psychiatry is interested in really this intersection of food and mental health. And where did your passion for the combination of the two come together? It's probably not something that you think of psychiatrists getting a chance to learn about in medical school. You know, it's interesting, right? Even though the brain burns more fuel than more of your food than, than any other organ, uh, it is striking. We don't learn a lot about brain nutrition. I've really always been interested in food for uh, and, and how it connects to health. And personally, for I was part of that low-fat vegetarian movement for, gosh, about a decade, really trying to, uh, what I thought was, improve my health through that style of diet, which, you know, something now I will talk more about, but not a way I recommend people eat. And then I probably part of my influence just I come from a farm. And so I, I grew up growing a fair amount of food. My folks were part of the back to the land movement and moved back to Indiana, uh, moved out to Indiana and got, bought a small farm. And we didn't really ever produce a lot of stuff other than food for ourselves and trying to be good stewards of our land. And that just teaches you a lot, teaches you a lot of humility 
uh, around food and, and teaches you to uh, appreciate some things like that they're really, I think, happening a lot now. We're seeing much more appreciation for the robust breadth of produce that can be produced by small farms. And I think so many of us now go to a farmer's market where back when I was going to medical school and residency, you know, farmer's markets still weren't a, that big of a thing. Yeah. And I think right now we're seeing this real strong campaign, especially in in Western societies, in the U.S. and in England and other places, this really strong awareness around mental health. But so far, the conversation is primarily around access and affordability. Your approach when it comes to mental health is really helping us expand the idea of what we think is possible. Could you give us a little bit of an overview of you know, sort of the traditional psychiatric approach versus how you look at things? Well, I will. I mean, I'd argue in some ways I'm a pretty traditional psychiatrist. Um, I think so that it's my hope is that psychiatry is in your life more. If you think about it, most people think of seeing me going to see a psychiatrist is, is a real big deal and a bummer, an indication there's a lot wrong with your life. And when I think about what my skills are as a clinician, my skills are really around helping people lead really full and robust life uh, lives and to use a variety of different tools I've been taught uh, to break down the barriers to that, whatever it might be in terms of your emotional and your cognitive health. And so part of my hope is that as we're opening up the conversation and really understanding that stigma is about shutting down a conversation we need to have. Stigmas that we feel um, ashamed and embarrassed to talk about what we really all know is true. There's nobody listening to this right now, neither one of the Drews talking, who hasn't had some challenges when it comes to their mood, hasn't had challenges when it comes to their sleep, hasn't wondered whether their worries are out of proportion. There's a universal language we all have about mental health that I, I just hope we tap into more, and then I hope people use mental health and psychiatry services more. You're right. The conversation's been about access, and primarily, you know, for some folks, it's about there just there isn't a lot of good mental health resources around. Sometimes, though, I think we really overlook. Uh, there's a, 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 tr a tremendous amount of services you can tap into. It doesn't have to be a psychiatrist or a psychologist. You know, one of my favorite treatments. Uh, in America, uh, it went all over is AA. You, know, you want to help somebody get sober and they get interested and involved with AA, that's a free program that's available worldwide that is a great mental health resource. So, But in terms of, I guess, just a little bit, how am I different than your traditional standard guy um, or gal doing psychiatry? Uh, that traditional model, I think, first of all, has been turned on its head. Right? The idea that you go in and you know, you're just going to get meds or you go in and there's going to be a lot of judgment, that, that's not really who we are as psychiatrists anymore, at least not the psychiatrists that I know. I, I really try to incorporate a lot about food, especially if that's something that I, I've gotten more interested in and more knowledge about. So, so my typical eval with the patient will have all those mental health questions, but I also want to assess how people eat, the pattern of how they eat, and what their relationship is to food, not just from a pathological standpoint of screening out eating disorders, but, but really trying to understand how do you think about and sequence and plan out and, and prioritize the nourishment of yourself. And I do that both for the nutrition stuff. I mean, I like to geek out about that, like making sure you get enough B12, et cetera. But what I really find fascinating in psychiatrists and probably why it's stuck with me is what it teaches me about you. And, and if I understand you as an eater, where you source your food, um, how you think about your food, it tells me a tremendous amount about how you value yourself and how you care for yourself and how you understand your place in this world. And so that's really, in some ways, what's made it really stick for me is I, I never ask people about, like, what was, what was it like around your dinner table as a kid? When we think about those memories that just come up for everybody when we say, when we think about that. There's so much rich information there about who we are, where we come from, what we value, that, that, that has to be part of it. How can we have a good conversation about authentic mental health and, and, and who we are and finding our purpose? If, if we're, we're trying to help you get there, we need to know these contexts of how you think about yourself, where you come from, how you care for yourself. So, And I don't know how different that makes me from traditional psychiatry, Drew. I mean, <laughs> I think... Um, uh, probably a little bit in the depth of the amount I do food and, and maybe a little bit in the amount that um, I really tried to cast off a, a type of stigma and judgment that comes from both sides of the aisle in the marriage between alternative health and, and, and traditional health and functional medicine where you know, to really have a foot in both worlds and appreciate people get better a lot of different ways. And our job as practitioners is to make sure they get there. 
Yeah, and I think that um, that's what people love and respect about you. You know, you have your foot firmly in both worlds. You know, you live on a farm, which we're going to talk about next, but you're also a professor at Columbia University. But I do want to highlight at least one thing and the specialness around this. You know, people saw you on the Broken Brain documentary and they see somebody talking about the clear evidence about how food can affect our mental health. And then we have folks write in who are working with uh, traditional practitioners who might just flat out tell them, you know, one of two things, food has nothing to do with your mental health, or there might be something promising, but there's the classic line is there's no evidence that's out there that strongly shows this, which often can be just an indication that that practitioner might not be aware. But here you are talking about very clear evidence and ways that we can bring in food as one of the tools into our toolbox along with everything. Don't you find that as pretty unique or just maybe you're surrounded by just super brilliant people at Columbia University who are very open-minded? Well, I think that my colleagues at Columbia are very, I think, open-minded. I've been um, really blessed to have both a, a chairman who's a very traditional, you know, uh, psychiatrist, a leader in the, in the field of schizophrenia and just a leader in psychiatry, who I remember when I told him I, I was so nervous telling my first book, The Happiness Diet, was going to come out. I was like quaking in my boots, and he just looked me in the eye and said, I hope you get traction with that. And so um, there's actually some of the top omega-3 researchers, uh, Elizabeth Sublitz at Columbia, and um, I think this is common sense. I think that, that traditional psychiatry gets worried because patients have been sold a false bill of goods so often and put their hopes and their prayers and, and sometimes their lives in a set of interventions that we don't have enough data about sometimes. That's the nice thing about food. Food appeals both from a common sense standpoint, like unlike all other interventions in mental health and in health, you're already doing food. You're gonna eat today. And so if I can help you dial that in to, to improve your brain health, that feels like a win for everybody. It sort of frustrates me, honestly, where, where it, it somehow food became alternative medicine <laughs> and, and somehow the idea that, you know, if you're actively psychotic or um, you are suicidally depressed, uh, anybody who's given medicines has seen those work very well. And somehow that's what we begin comparing food to. And, and I think that's a really a, a huge mistake that we all make. You know, it's, it, it becomes a question of like zucchinis versus Zoloft. And I really try and ground the conversation in a notion of let's talk about food. Let's talk about what the evidence is in food and let's apply that to our patients very rapidly because it's, it's free. They're already doing it and we have some data. So yes, question about data. Let's talk about it. First of all, the data started out where, uh, in a correlational way. And so everybody really doesn't love this data. It's not super strong data. It just says, Hey, folks who eat more Mediterranean or traditional style diets, have a much lower incidence, about a, a let's say a 30 to 50% lower incidence of clinical depression compared with people eating Western food or, or you know highly processed foods. And, and that was replicated in a lot of different populations for the Japanese, for the Norwegians, from the Mediterranean diet, they did a meta-analysis of all the studies. But what we were missing was some randomized trial data. And so that came on last year in 2017. It was an exciting year because two trials came out. The SMILES trial, which was Felice Jacka, an Australian researcher, looked at the modified Mediterranean diet. So she took the Mediterranean diet, added in a little bit of red meat, and gave people a cooking class. They also gave people some food and, and sort of taught them how to eat and, and prepare a more Mediterranean-style diet, and they tracked what happened. First of all, people did really well in this intervention, and who wouldn't? I mean, you know, like, gosh, that would help my depression, right? Hey, you've got to, got to go to your Mediterranean diet cooking class later today. <laughs> so, uh, but they did have a very good control group, just to let people know. Anyway, individuals, about a third of individuals, and, and these were folks who had clinical depression. This wasn't like a little bit blue. They were already in treatment, psychotherapy, a lot of them were already taking medications. A third of them went into full remission. And that might not sound like wow. a lot, especially if you're not in the depression field, like a third. That's, you know, no, that's huge. But that, that's huge. If, if any drug were, could do that, yeah, I mean, exactly. it'd be a billion dollar drug. It would be a multi-billion dollar drug. And let's just talk about that data. So right now, if you fail a, a medicine, meaning it doesn't work for you, is that funny how we say like, you know, people fail these medicines, but actually, <laughs> but let's say you take something like a Zoloft or a Prozac, it helps you a little bit, but not all the way. Usually the next step in a psychopharm trial, you, you get added on something like a Wellbutrin, but recently, some of these atypical antipsychotics like aripripsazole and Abilify have gotten some data behind them, and they get added on. 
it's an augmentation strategy. So if you look, a colleague of mine, Robert Berman up at Columbia, looked at that and said, okay, well, what's the number needed to treat if we add on Abilify? And it's 10. We have to treat 10 patients to get one better. Not a great number. In Felice Jacka's study, the SMILE study, they found the number needed to treat with a Mediterranean diet was four. Incredible. And let's go to the money. Abilify, depending on your insurance, is, can be quite expensive. Some patients up to, for a little while, almost $1,000 a month. What about the Mediterranean diet? Eating real food costs more, right? Mm, no, actually the patients in the trial saved 180 Australian dollars a month. And so I think that's the kind of research that then is very exciting. And part of the thing that gets concerning is it begins to get picked apart. And we see this happening in science and in, in, in it, this, this polarization where a study comes out and wasn't big enough or it wasn't. <laughs> it, it, I was very excited to see this study come out for a number of reasons. It was a well-designed trial. It tested um, a really important aspect of this we don't talk about, which is whether we can change how patients eat. Because so many traditional physicians are frustrated. They say, yeah, I'd love my patients to eat better. I tell them to, and they don't. What do you want me to do? And they don't have training and they don't have time and that kind of classical medical model. So it was exciting to see that you could quickly get people to convert their food. And that's what um, our team here in New York sees. Uh, we have a, a wonderful food coach uh, and, and social worker, Samantha, who does a lot of therapy with our patients and a lot of really active coaching. And it really surprised me when we brought her on board how quickly people could begin to rapidly, we call it sort of rapid diet transformation, where you look at where that they're eating the day they meet us and you look at what they're eating a month later, and it's just a different set of foods. And so people, you know, the take-home message for folks is you can change your diet. There was another uh, randomized trial that came out in the fall, the Healthy Med trial, that, that replicated the, these results. You can change food, and changing food helps decrease depression risk. And actually, I was just at a conference over the weekend called uh, Soil and Health, brought together some, some soil experts and health experts. And there was a family practice doctor there, Stephen Chen, who works at a Hayward Clinic. It's a community clinic. They don't have much mental health support, and they added on this multimodal intervention where people got like group exercise and group activities to socialize. They got a food prescription in a pharmacy. He actually partnered with a, a farm, and so he could write out like $10 of produce, and they would go to a place in the clinic and be able to cash that in for and leave, leave the doctor's office with food. And this isn't a traditional Medicaid clinic. So anyway, he followed about 6,000 patients. He found 18% of them had food insecurity. You know, they don't know where they're going to get their next healthy meal. And he found very high rate of depression. Well, with his intervention, giving people food, giving people opportunity to move and socialize, he saw those uh, depression scores uh, drop by 30 to 40%. Uh, and, and so sort of on the evidence side, what we're seeing more of, from a mechanistic standpoint, this makes sense. Diets with more B vitamins, more long-chain omega-3 fats, more minerality, more nutrient density, more phytonutrients, that just makes sense from a brain health standpoint. Just from the biochemistry, that's what the brain needs. And that's what healthy brains use more of and, and do well. Then we're seeing these you know, kind of strong, consistent correlational patterns. And now we have randomized data. So that's good evidence. And it's good evidence, though, that supports something which everybody listening knows is common sense. We talk about the specific brain food. I doubt I'm going to like name a food and people are like, oh, my gosh. I didn't know wild salmon and blueberries and quinoa were good for my brain. <laughs> we know what brain food looks like. It's really having a reckoning or a moment of, of really looking at your diet and what you're eating or your food plan, as we like to call it, and seeing, is there first of all, is there enough joyfulness in it? Are you really enjoying being an eater on this planet? Because, look, it's a, it's a brief trip no matter how which you play it. You should enjoy it, in my mind. And, and then where, where are your challenges? And how can you get partnership and help around those with people, either in your, your community or, or who take care of your health with you? You know, so much of your openness is also connected to your aware, awareness around food. And that connection comes from living on a farm. You know, in my introduction, I was sharing how you split some of your time um, on this 127-acre organic farm. You know, paint a picture for our listeners' minds. You know, how did this farm come to be, and what does your uh, family's life look like on this farm? Oh, y'all want to hear about my farm? Well, let me tell you. So <laughs> my farm's in uh, rural Indiana. If you look at a map of Indiana at the very south, right where the Ohio River is, we, we call it Kentuckiana, and I'm in Crawford County. Crawford County is the poorest county in Indiana, so uh, 
uh, some folks uh, listening who haven't been to that part of the world might not recognize it. Some of it doesn't quite look like the rest of America. Real, real rundown, real poor. There's a little bit of industry, but boy, if you look at Google Maps, we're one of the greenest places around. Uh, we're in the middle of the Hoosier National Forest, and so our farm is uh, up on a hill. It's a mix of uh, reasonably maturing forests that we've tended to over the years, and so one of the real uh, fun things that I spent more time there with the land is the sort of the, the things that the land teaches you. Um, so we, we spent a lot of time wondering what, what could we produce more of? And we were robbing our hives a couple of years ago with buddy Ian. We, we pull a few hundred pounds of honey out of our hives every year. And, uh, uh, and we, and we decided to take a break and we took a walk in the woods and uh, the woods were in bloom. The chanterelle mushrooms were in bloom. And here's this, you know, really coveted gourmet product, and it's just, it's all over the forest, and we just pick armfuls of it. So our forest is a very special part of the farm for us. And then we have some really nice pasture that, uh, when, when we had kids, they started spending the summers out there and then moved out there where I, I commute back and forth to the clinic here. And uh, so really now for the first time for the last couple of years, I've really gotten to be with the farm over a year of cycle and, and that sort of seasonality that, that really shares so many insights uh, into our health and into the, especially as a psychiatrist, as I think about the, you know, the patterns and the seasons of our lives and the inevitability of some things, um, somehow being on a farm is uh, I guess just on a personal and somewhat spiritual level, just really in, inspires me and, and rewards me. Um, uh, when you wake up, uh, gosh, our bedroom, we're, we're up at the top of the farmhouse. We look out over our uh, we've got a nine-acre front field that's uh, mixed. We've got a little pear orchard and the distance and a bunch of uh, a bunch of different little gardens here and there where we grow mainly produce for ourselves. Uh, we've got a big a big pond that's uh, full of catfish. And um, I don't know what else to tell you about the farm. So, and we're, we're uh, you know, a four-season farm. So our growing season goes from we put in a little hoop house this year. So we were harvesting fresh kale by the end of March. And, and other things. I don't just eat kale, and we will probably be pulling food out of that. We might make it through the winter, uh, but uh, certainly um, deep into the fall where we're getting some calories, at least trying to grow a fair amount ourselves. And tell us about life growing up. Where this motivation and this connection to the land and farming, you know, most people have, obviously over the last hundred years, the population has completely become distant from uh, even growing very basic things. So has your family always been into uh, having a farm? Is this how you grew up and this was normal for you? Uh, oh, no, my parents really didn't know what the hell they were doing. I mean, they they got into this kind of, I mean, this this food movement we're seeing, it's been here before. And there was this whole back to the land movement, really in some ways inspired by the Rodales and, and by the organic movement. Um, I was just, uh, when I was out with these soil scientists, I met a, one of these original organic farmers, Tom Wiley. Probably everybody listening to this has actually eaten produce that Tom grew. He uh, moved to the to the Produce Valley, uh, the uh, San Joaquin Valley, um, gosh, 40 years ago. And it just has grown a tremendous amount of produce for America over the last uh, 40 years. Anyway, uh, my folks didn't have that kind of knowledge. They, they moved out there and they wanted to get back to the land. But un- unlike Tom, they didn't start really intensively farming. But what you quickly see, and, and I would recommend to anybody who hasn't spent time on a farm or with your hands in the dirt, um, and you're curious about food and you're curious about health, I highly recommend that you spend some time getting to know a farmer near you. It would be one of the top things I'd actually recommend uh, when it comes to understanding food. Because we can go on all day about the nutrients. One of the real take-homes I had as I sat with individuals thinking about the systems and what's going wrong with our health and our mental health, it's not just about the nutrients. It's about our place in this overall system that helps us not just get the nutrients, but also get more of that nourishment that many of us have been missing. Um, so, so we're up on a farm just around that, Drew. It's hard to explain. I mean, when you go out and, and it's uh, in the summer and it's late until 10, and uh, we had a couple goats a few years ago, a couple lactating goats. I got really curious about the dairy debate. So this is kind of a flavor, I guess, how I solve things. Like, you know, I, I go into PubMed and I pull that stuff up. And I'm like, you know... Let's try this out at home. So we got a couple of goats and uh, milk them every morning, and you get an experience where you, you you take your goats out with your kids and your wife, and kind of wander through your front pasture as the sun's going down. And and I don't think people re- realize how noisy it is on a farm. All the tree frogs and all the bullfrogs and all the cicadas all start chirping and chanting, and um, and that dust time lasts for gosh, you know, a couple of hours almost. And 
that sits with you and that that uh, moment that becomes food that very much leads to the milk in the morning which very much leads to making the goat cheese which and, and it tastes different i think that's the other thing probably is that when you when you live on a farm and you uh the other day i, I, I rushed a like our daughter plays drums, had a little concert, and I'd forgotten. I mean, it was my turn to make lunch. I raced out to the farm, didn't race, I walked out to the farm and I put in a bunch of different tomato varietals, pulled off a bunch of tomatoes, pulled out some basil. We harvested, uh, gosh, like close to 100 pounds of garlic this year, chopped up and suddenly, like, had this you know, big tomato, basil, kale, pasta thing. And I don't know, it just, that tomato tastes, um, well, Everybody's listening had a tomato at farmer's market. You all know what I'm talking about. It's got the life force in it. It's got that yeah. energy, you know, that thing that's uh, that intangible. You know, the farmers call it tilth when it's in the soil. And tilth is this expression of the life force of a soil. Um, and the expression of, uh, you know, a farmer, when you give him healthy soil and he's good tilth, you know, he'll smell it, he'll feel it. it but it's, yeah, it's the life force of that soil. And so... So being on a farm, you're, you're around that and you're around the resiliency of life all the time and the diversity of life where, you know, there are hundreds of little critters and bugs and hummingbirds. And the other day on a walk, I saw a red fox and box turtles and earthworms and millipedes. And uh, this list goes on and on of the, the flora and the fauna. And so no matter where you are in terms of being religious, it's hard not to be quite spiritual when you're, you're in the midst of all that synergy. You know, uh, you were talking about how you were just at a conference with a bunch of other leaders in the space. I just want to touch on this a, a little bit is that, you know, not only farming connecting us back to our food source, but there's this whole movement of regenerative agriculture, which is also related to the overall health of the of the planet can you just touch on that for a little bit you oh, know, with your passion I'd love, to, true. I'd love to just to highlight some of the folks i mean who are major players in this so i was out at picinus ranch which is a uh, an effort uh, by uh, sally calhoun and her husband matt who are uh, engineers by training and have really uh, gotten involved via their ranch and their efforts to restore soil. Uh, so they hosted a group that was carried by Daphne Miller. Uh, folks should check out Daphne Miller's book, Pharmacology with an F. She's a she's a real leader in, in kind of thinking about soil and about microbiome. And she's a family practice physician out in San Francisco. And it was, it was just really quite inspiring. So regenerative agriculture is the idea that right now we have an extraction economy. So the number one cost in your food is fuel, that, that, uh, that beautiful organic kale that you have. I don't think most people appreciate where it comes from. And it doesn't come from the dirt. It comes from cow manure, usually, or chicken manure from CAFOs, uh, concentrated animal feeding operations. It gets pasteurized. It gets uh, sort of fermented in a way and heated up. So now you can call it organic matter. And it gets mixed in and then it gets seeded and intensively with one crop. And over time, what happens then is you're really spending two things. You're, you're, you're spending a lot of nitrogen in those, in those manures and you're spending a lot of diesel fuel as you move your tractor back and forth those fields, you know, five, six, ten times for a harvest to, to plant and prepare the soil. Regenerative agriculture, we can go into all the problems of that, but regenerative agriculture says this is not how this system works. And the way that the soil system works is about having living roots. It's about preventing soil compaction by leaving those roots in there. And the reason this is important is when it rains, then as opposed to the water staying on the surface and running off and causing all kinds of floods and losing our topsoil, the, the earth becomes like a sponge for the water. The other thing is we're so concerned about climate change. There's a lot of data around how a system like this, which is a solar powered system, uh, because it's all grass and pastures based, absorbs and sequesters a lot of carbon uh, because these plants with these deep roots, they're growing for longer in the season. They're pulling more carbon dioxide out of the system, out of the environment. And, and so regenerative agriculture is really trying to return us to a relationship with the land that generates a, a better soil. It also generates better food. What, what, what happens if you look at the kind of the microbiome of soil, so we talk about microbiome in terms of our gut, but everything has a microbiome. It's not just bacteria, it's viruses, fungus. If you, if you look at soil on diversely planted no-till farms, it, it's very different than even an organic farm. Um, uh, there's this brilliant farmer, uh, farm manager at Picinus Ranch, Kelly. And uh, Kelly's just such a big braid. He, uh, 
uh, a sort of bunch of data. And, and if you look at the nitrogen, phosphorus, phosphorus, and potassium content of a soil that is diversely planted, that runs some animals on it a couple times a year, it is it is by far the healthiest, most nutrient dense, most microbiome diverse type of soil that you can find. And, and that produces better food. And so regenerative agriculture is trying to get into these systems that conserve our water, that produce more nutritious food for uh, our people, and that that is uh, that tends our land in a way that uh, treats it with guess, a type of respect, both for the land and for the communities around it, that instead of all of these are extraction economies, instead of all of the food and all the money kind of going out, and a lot of these farming communities are incredibly poor, um, what can we do to regenerate what, what has really eroded over the past hundred years? And I think one of the fascinating things about it, you know, uh, you know, there's the book, The Drawdown, uh, and Paul Hawken and that team. I, I think re- regenerative agriculture was listed as like the t- top 11th solution for really, you know, addressing climate change. You know, sharing about that earlier, like it has massive implications on on our climate, and then all these other additional equations on the diversity of the food that we can get and reducing the cost of uh, food in our society has like so many implications if implemented. Well, I think, you know, our food reflects us. I think human beings do best when we're in a really diverse environment when we have really like strong living roots in our community when we haven't been compacted and burned out by, you know, getting stepped on all the time. Uh, they're, they're wonderful lessons of the soil. It was really, it was a really, um, I encourage any uh, folks who want to get involved with this. I think there's a really strong movement afoot and it's very, um, it's exciting. But it also pushes us to move the conversation in some ways to like wellness 2.0 or, or, or healthy eating where we're so long the debate has been polarized, much like has happened in politics, right? It's the vegans versus the carnivores or some variation of that. And what regenerative agriculture forces you to do is really consider the food cycle in a different way. There aren't really any farmers out there who have ever tried to farm without manure. In systems that really seek to um, have healthy soil, that has to come from somewhere. And so really, um, I was actually just yesterday, I was in a probably thousand acre broccoli field, right? The healthy vegetable, broccoli and kale. And I'm sitting there and you know, the wind is whipping and there's dust everywhere and there aren't really many people. And it's, it's somehow profoundly sad, even though as a physician, that's like the healthy food I hope everyone eats. And it's sad because it's not a sustainable system. And I think it's saddest actually after being all inspired by what we can achieve, what we can do with agriculture. I think it's sad that that's where we are right now. Sometimes it's a little hard to see the path forward, but I think, I, I think I was with the group that's going to be taking steps to really, really change how we think about soil conservation so yeah i i love that i think the more important thing is just the awareness is getting out there so we're actually having that you know we're in wellness and most communities and other things the conversation can start off very uh black and white and it's like the goal of this podcast and obviously the goal of your work and you're doing so well in your books and your courses and in your media focuses like the conversation is a lot more sophisticated if we want to get to the root issue if we want real solutions it needs to be a much more sophisticated uh, conversation. It does, and, and I think we all have to do a better job of listening. I'm really, uh, as I've been more in the wellness world, more in the functional medicine world, more um, uh, getting some real gifts to learn from the agricultural world, I'm, I'm finding that, especially you know, as a physician, there's this hierarchical sense that somebody put us on top. And I'm, I'm really trying to check that as much as I can and really listen to our, our colleagues. You know, if you think about who is the most important for a person or occupational group for America's health, I would argue it's our farmers. And if you look at what's happening to our farmers, their suicide rate is five times the national average. You know, 270,000 farmers have committed suicide in India since something like 1995. I mean, it's just, we, we now value farmers markets, but I would say that we have a long way to go in terms of really honoring and valuing our farmers. But we are having a better conversation, Drew, and it is something to be very hopeful about. You know, talking about farmers and community, uh, most people listening to this, you know, looking at our data and everything that live in cities, right? Different cities across different urban environments across uh, the U.S. And, uh, you know, you also split your time in a city. Right now you're in New York City. And um, what are the ways that you stay in touch with the local community and local food when you're in New York? And, and what kind of tips can other folks who are listening who also live in cities uh, take away from that? Well, the first tip is, is really 
looking at the structure of where you're getting your food and, and how much of it comes from places near you. And, and just to have a you know an assessment of that, I'm, I'm big into there not being judgment around this stuff, right? Just where is it, right? Don't worry about it. Just find out where it is. And if you're not eating any food from close by, first of all, interesting, where, where could you find some? And usually that's going to be farmer's markets. Um, they're great resources. Localharvest.org has a farm and restaurant locator and, and farmer's market locator. But I encourage people to think about you know, heading to their local farmer's market. That's the easiest way to get more involved with your, your local food scene. I, I think it's also to think about what's unique culinarily about where you are. And, and a lot of people say not much, but uh, th- there really is. Most places in America have something special about them. Uh, you know, maybe use that as a guide. Um, if you have a yard, I mean, it's time to, I would argue, time to roll up your sleeves. There's a way even with, with, a, with a yard and a piece of PVC plastic, you can... Uh, <laughs> You can grow a fair amount of food, and I think it just teaches you, especially if you have kids. I highly recommend people do like a little kitchen garden or herb garden. Um, it's a great way to engage kids with food. My kids always love going out and picking stuff and chopping it up with their little plastic kitty knives. And, you know, it's it's helpful, but it also uh, makes me hopeful about their experience and, as an eater and what's going to happen, their development as an eater. Those would be the main, uh, there are all kinds of other intensive programs, you know, if people who are more interested. I mean, a farmer that I'm learning a lot from right now is uh, Ken Hartman called the Lean Farmer. Uh, there's uh, another really wonderful farmer uh, up in Quebec, uh, Jean-Martin Fortier, who has a, a really wonderful market farm and talks a lot about these principles. So those would be some some kind of on the farming and food side. But, you know, main thing I think for people to hear is like, if you're not involved, hey, it, it's a party. There's a fun, there's a fun community of folks in your community who are really excited about food. And uh, actually, I just, I recommend, I have a patient who's, he's telling me he's about to go under a little immunosuppression therapy. He's telling me about his bacterial wipes. And I said to him, I said, you know, I think you need to uh, put your hands in the dirt. I said, oh, he said, why? You mean like, cause I'm scared of the germs? I was like, no, not for like exposure, OCD stuff. Just, just because I think you need to put your hands in the dirt. And spend time with the earth and spend time that, you know, we have had this notion for so long, that, like bacteria is bad. But, you know, I think by other, there's something very grounding and something um, important uh, for everyone. You, you will not look at the food on your plate the same once you try and grow it. And you won't look at the organic food movement the same until you try and grow a little bit of food. And, uh, and it shifts, it really shifts. It shifts perspective significantly because it's really, really, really hard <laughs> to grow good food. So well said. And, you know, there's this other component, which is, you know, getting involved in your community is also related to connection. And, you know, in the Broken Brain documentary, we talked a lot about social isolation and how that can contribute to one of the factors in, in depression and so many other mental, uh, you know, disorders. When you think about this sort of history of food and disconnecting from where our food is grown. And you see also this rise in, I mean, there's so many factors that go into why somebody might be in a place where they have social isolation. But one of the things that I guess that when I look out there in the world, one of the things that's important, I'm wondering if it's important to you, is we're just not really having meals with a lot of other people. And, you know, connecting like the food and the community component and social isolation that's one simple way to address this epidemic we're seeing. Well, yeah, and I, I, I agree. And I also think it's one of the ways clinically I try and understand that broader notion of nourishment. I just spoke with the patient today and her husband is a very, very busy, very important guy. They don't have a date night once a week. They don't you know, have a night a week that they all sit down and eat dinner together. Just one night a week. And I, you know, I almost keep score that way. Of, have I done a good job as a dad, as a parent, and, and as a person? And I kind of think, well, how many how many meals did I eat with my kids? Because my kids are young, and that is a very special opportunity to be with them. Uh, I, I think that it's a huge part of it is, you know, it's not just I say if you're eating all the great brain foods, but you're in isolation. I don't think it's as good for your brain. Your brain loves to connect. And even if you're a shy and anxious person, all of my patients who are socially anxious, they love it when they have a good connection. And that's what the structure of our brain. It's an organ of connection. And so we want to apply that to food, connect to where it comes from, connect with the food on your plate in front of you, and connect with the people around you. I mean, that that is the real value, uh, health value of our food is that it connects us. Uh, and um, the more we embrace that, the more people embrace that within within and use it to connect. I, I think the, 
the healthier and less depressed you'll be, but also I just think the fabrics of our society get wound a little tighter. And given all the turbulence we're all going through, no matter what side of the aisle you're sitting on, um, more connection right now is something we all need. What are some other factors? You know, you're seeing patients all the time, and I'm sure you even see people with a lot of quote unquote friends who experience, you know, the sense of social isolation. What, what are other things that you think about are contributing to this? And, and what can we do besides, you know, putting that emphasis on food and community that could help us start to unpack and reverse this process we're seeing? Well, you know, I think there's the the texting, not talking. I've been struck that over the years where, you know, my younger patients, they've been talking with their friend and then I realized, well, they've been texting. And so there's, you know, there's something about face-to-face communication that, that has changed, not face-to-face like FaceTime. And, you know, I, I wonder if some of us, we, we begin to sound like old farts that, you know, uh, those kids these days, but uh, shouldn't be texting. But, I, you know, I text. <laughs> I use my phone way too much. And I think it's good to... Um, create structures to, to limit that and spend more time with people. Um, I, I think putting structure in your life, everybody says they're too busy these days. We're all too busy. Well, I don't know. Sometimes I've been feeling like that's kind of become a rationalization and excuse. And I, I guess I'd challenge anybody out there. I don't think you're too busy. And honestly, I doubt you're busier than I am. Maybe that sounds a little arrogant, but I'm pretty darn busy. And I still do my best to make a lot of time for the things that are important and keep me well. And you should too. Being too busy, that's not an excuse not to eat right. I think it's a rationalization. It's like saying it costs too much. It might feel that way, and I certainly have been there and appreciate it, or it might feel too hard, but I, I feel there's a lot of living proof that it's not, and, and it's really about prioritizing those things, um, prioritizing friendship. All the folks I know who are socially isolated or struggling in that way or struggling with the angst of that, you know, the things that help the most are getting good sleep <laughs> and, and creating structure around the engagement. So it's something that for sure happens. Um, one of my favorites for me was uh, I was uh, part of a basketball game for years when I lived uh, downtown in New York. I'd wake up on Sunday morning. So it helped me make sure I, I took it easy on Saturday night, which was helpful to me. And then it got me together with a bunch of guys who uh, I you know, really came to know and just had a great time playing ball and uh, really was a big part of my mental health during that period of my life. So Yeah, it's that intentional creating of community, but having it be, I think there's one thing that you know, human beings have always been really great at is creating rituals that sort of um, have the interaction of community and connection happen on a regular base, like basis. And, you know, regular basketball game, it's almost like you have to opt out of it, you know, because it's going to happen each week. So are you going to come on Sunday or you're not going to come on Sunday? It was was, was all that email, like who's in? And like, you know, you want to be in and you make it work. It's kind of, it's like getting home for dinner. You know, at some point, uh, I think particularly for parents, maybe that's the phase on life and I'm, that I am in. So I'm focused on that. You know, people don't give you a promotion or a raise or get, you know, put it on your resume that you get home to dinner more. Uh, it doesn't get measured in our society in a certain way. But uh, I think it's one of the most fundamentally important things that, that people uh, get encouraged to value that, you know, for their health and for their family's health is to really be with one another. So Dr. Ramsey, thank you for all that information on connection and social isolation. I think it's something that our community can really relate to, and I, we see it in the questions that they ask us all the time. So I appreciate you covering it. Now, I want to bring it back to food and brain health and some practical tips. You were recently, uh, you, were, you recently authored a paper that was featured in the World Journal of Psychiatry. Can you tell us a little about that paper, the title, and what we can learn from uh, what you covered inside of there. Uh, sure, Drew, and, and thanks so much for steering us back to practical tips because that's uh, for everybody who's, who's listening, that's what I hope you take from this is that some, some ideas around how you can better feed your brain because all of us, myself included, we can all do a little bit better job. So Dr. Laura Lachance is a really brilliant psychiatrist up in Toronto who's one of the early brain food enthusiasts and she and I started working together. And as we were thinking about how do you really decide if you're going to prescribe food in a psychiatry clinic? What should those foods be? And so we looked at all of the literature about all of the nutrients, the vitamins and the minerals that are essential to the human diet. And what is the literature about the prevention and treatment of depression related to those nutrients? And we found there are 12 nutrients with really good data, stuff that I think most people listening have heard of and would be surprised about, vitamin B12 and iron and vitamin E and, of course, the long-chain omega-3 fats. And then we just did kind of an accounting exercise of, okay, what foods have the most of those evidence-based nutrients per calorie? And we learned a couple things. 
First, there, there are 26 nutrient profiling systems, and that's what this paper is called Brain Foods, a, a, an evidence-based nutrient profiling system for depression. But none of them have ever focused on brain health or on mental health. And, and so we wanted to try and get a list of foods, and, and, and we learned a couple of things. One is nutrient profiling systems emphasize food categories. And that's a great thing for uh, us thinking clinically, but also helping people reconceptualize how to think about food. It, you know, it, it, I love kale. I love celebrating National Kale Day in October, but it's uh, not just kale. It's that food category of leafy greens. And so what we found were the food categories of, of leafy greens, of seafood, of organ meats are very, very nutrient dense uh, for not very many calories. The other thing we did is, is we didn't just have plants. Now, we love plants. I, you know, I'm a big fan of having mostly plants on your plate. We wanted to also put animal foods on there. And so this is actually one of the first nutrient profiling systems to, to include meats and animal foods and seafoods. And, and just as a preview in the top five foods, surprisingly, not really surprisingly, actually, are the bivalves, mussels, clams, and oysters. And it's a great example. If you think about those foods, what do they have so much of? Well, they have B12 and zinc and iodine and iron and long-chain omega-3 fats and, and a number of other nutrients, all of which are really critical to brain health. I love that. And, and just because you're a farmer and an eater and you think about our environment and the best way to consume these things, you know, we live in a complicated world and there's times that people read about how soon there's going to be more fish, uh, there's going to be more plastic in the sea than there is going to be fish. You know, just on a practical level, level, obviously you're always trying to do your best, but what does that look like for you? How do you navigate, let's talk about the meats first, uh, oysters, you know, seafood. How do you navigate in your personal life to try to get the best quality you can, uh, but still be able to include these foods and not write them off completely? For sure. And, and for a long time, I was a vegetarian because I had so many health concerns. One of the reasons I started eating meat and seafood, again, were for specific nutrients, but also by caring about those foods and seeking out different qualities. It's a way that I've helped um, help myself, I guess, think about and learn about the food system. In, in a different way, because it's easy to be maybe anti-meat or anti-seafood or worry about the heavy metals or the plastics. But by, by being a consumer of those foods, it pulls you into those conversations in a way that I think is really important for all of us to, to be a part of. So the way I navigate that, first of all, is just talk about meats and red meats. Um, I try to partner, uh, I live part of our time on the farm, and so uh, we get our, our meat from our neighbor across the street where we, we give him hay. Now that, that and we, we uh, buy some, uh, usually a quarter of a cow. But other ways to do that is just to look for local beef at your farmer's market. Other great meat to look for is lamb. Because uh, the reason you're going with these meats is they're grass-fed, they're pasture-raised, they're raised in a way that actually is quite good for the planet because it, it, it increases carbon sinks by encouraging pasture. And, and that's probably you know, a longer conversation, and I'm sure a lot of the community has thought and talked about that. Uh, in terms of seafood, it's about eating small seafoods low on the food chain, and there are lots of resources. Usually people look to the Monterey Bay Aquarium in terms of a great website and, and a, a nice chart of what fish to look for. But if you avoid fish like tilefish, shark, swordfish, like older, bigger fish, you know, that's one way of avoiding some of the toxins for sure because the animal just doesn't have as much exposure. The other is uh, people have a misconception about filter feeders like mussels and clams and oysters where they think about them as quote-unquote bottom feeders, like they're down there among all the toxins in the dirt. And, and that, that's not true in the evidence that, that actually oysters and mussels, both, first of all, they're young, right? They, they grow quickly and you harvest them that year. And, and, and secondly, they, they don't, you know, they filter the ocean, but they, it's not like they just bioaccumulate plastics. So those are the way that I, I try to look for my seafoods. My, my seafoods personally are things like anchovies, wild salmon, oysters, mussels, clams, um, and then a variety of some white fishes like, like uh, you know, even some occasional, just out of practicality, say some farm fish like, uh, like uh, rainbow trout. Uh, so th those are some of the, the ways in the foods that, that I kind of focus on for, from a seafood perspective. You mentioned you were vegetarian before, and just one question I'd love to ask you is that, sort of two-parter, when you started including seafood and meat into your diet, was that a hard thing for you to do, like psychologically, especially if you were a vegetarian for a while? And then number two, what did you actually notice physically in your body? Did you feel different? Did you notice your brain operating differently? Those are great questions, Drew, and thank you for the first one, because it was, um, 
it was an intentional choice and, and I, I've grown up with animals. I love animals. I really don't believe in cruelty at all towards animals. And so, um, uh, and I had, I had cut out meat um, a little, I wouldn't say slowly, but you know, for a little while, I had, like a lot of people had some chicken. I'd never been a big seafood eater. And so adding meat back in for me, really two-step process. One, for a long time in my life, and I think for me, it was a lesson about just respecting that we're all in different places with food. Uh, meat kind of upset me and grossed me out. And, and I just had some bad experiences and it just was in my mind and not a particularly positive way. And sometimes that still happens a little bit to me. Um, when it comes to seafood, I just didn't like it. I didn't like the way it tasted. I didn't like the way it smelled. Like, I, you know, I come from the country. It's not something that we eat a lot of. And so the first part was just really being gentle in terms of my early exposure to red meats in terms of things like stews, things that weren't, you know, there wasn't a lot of like, you know, chewing big rough chunks of meat, um, things that was more having it in the mix and as like part of the flavor profile. And that was very helpful to me in terms of just kind of getting used to the flavor again. Um, I think in terms of seafood, again, it's being gentle. If I started out with some, just like some general goals that I wanted to try and understand more of how could I like this and, I realized I like shrimp and I, and I like shrimp ceviche and you know I love shrimp tacos and that's one of my interventions now clinically is if people want to start exploring seafood there's those like beginner dishes where you know they think they've got to eat a big piece of salmon and it's like no just have a couple bites of this or that you know uh, try things if you're you know up to sushi try a few bites of things you don't even have to swallow it just keep trying stuff and get exposed. And then what about on the physical side of, the, of your body and how you notice yourself functioning? You talked about now including some of these foods. You know, the question is always, you know, what differences do people notice when they try different diets? So in this case, obviously, it's your own personal journey. But did you notice any different ha- difference having been vegetarian for so long? And if so, what what ways did it show up? Yeah, and, and I would just I like what you said that we're all different and, and we all have different experiences. And as a as a clinician, I you know I sometimes get hesitant because my story is probably going to be different than your story. And and you know, but what I noticed is just more energy. I used to fall asleep a lot in class, especially in the afternoon. I loved carbs and I ate a ton of snack well cookies and low fat stuff and veggie burgers and and you know a lot of processed foods. It was all vegetarian, low fat, low cholesterol stuff. Ate a lot of pasta with red sauce and mashed potatoes. Those were like go-to foods for me. So it wasn't just vegetarian. I mean, it, it, it was, I would say, not the healthiest version. I, I improved some of that, I would say. But I still, by the way, don't eat any chicken. But what I noticed is I started eating a lot more fats and olive oils and a lot of um, you know, very simple things uh, in terms of meats and, and seafood. I have more energy. I mean, it's hard to say. I'm also a parent during this period. So, but I have found it in terms of um, my kids that it's been, it's very helpful to, you know, it's hard to get zinc and I care a lot about zinc. Kids, you know, kids can eat a little grass-fed beef and get a ton of zinc. And so there are other ways, you know, pumpkin seeds and and, um, a variety of other plants that have some of these minerals and vitamins for sure. But, you know, I find, uh, as much as I push vegetables, there's something that kids take a little while to get used to and to like. But in terms of my own personal health, I, I think that more energy, probably better sleep. I got leaner. I think I was like a little puffier. And um, I mean, it's hard to know now. I'm in my 40s, Drew, so <laughs> we're all doing the best we can. And then I think there's something about mood for me, and it's a little hard to know because I've had a number of interventions on that front from psychoanalysis and individual therapy to some other things. But I think certainly my mood got a little bit more steady and, and more positive, um, particularly as I focused on the bivalves maybe in the past like seven years. Mm, incredible. Thank you for sharing that. And of course, definitely everybody's journey is different, but it's nice to see if people can relate. Um, I was vegetarian growing up coming from like a Hindu background. And so I ate a very specific way, probably similar to you, low fat, but highly processed vegetarian diet. Just whatever was not meat was the bulk of my diet. And I had my own experimentations. And of course, I always tell people I'm constantly experimenting. I'm trying to figure it out, but it's always nice to see the patterns and themes that uh, other people share, other people can share. And I appreciate how you shared it because I think a big part of functional medicine is that a true functional medicine doctor, a true clinician, a true person that's there to really support you really has no skin in the game in what you eat and how you eat other than the fact that they want to provide you options to say, hey, people who sometimes eat this way feel this and sometimes we can take on this diet for a therapeutic reason. At the end of the day, they're just committed to helping you 
you know, get better. Yeah. And I think it's one of the things that, um, you know, it's funny. I think about functional medicine, not in maybe the, the traditional term of the functional community, but I think there's functional medicine and there's dysfunctional medicine. And, yeah. <laughs> and, and functional medicine is when we help patients get better and we partner with them and we give them the menu of options that we think are best supported by the evidence or clinical experience. And, and we help guide them towards their health. And I think in both of our stories, what, what people are hearing is that, uh, as eaters, we evolve, we change, we grow, we learn, we have preferences, we have changes. And the more that you respect that and the more that you don't you know, have some notion, which so many people have, that there's that like holy land of, of eaterdom way out there somewhere <laughs> that, yeah. you know, that's right for you, that you're going to find one time and it's all going to be okay. And, and to be much more in a relationship with yourself as an eater and to experience and try things. Like I was thinking the other day, I do a lot of probably quasi-intermittent fasting, but I've never gone full ketogenic. And I was just thinking, you know, I really want to experience that before I die. I want to have like a month in ketosis and just kind of, as you said, what does it feel like? What happens? What does it change about you? And so I, I just hope everybody listening feels encouraged no matter where you are and what questions you have or what type of uh, diet you belong to, just to be feeling encouragement to, to keep exploring it and to keep paying attention to how it relates to your emotional health. That's great. Dr. Drew Ramsey, you're amazing. And before we conclude, just a couple more things that I want to go over with you. Uh, today is National Kale Day, and I only know that because I was on your Instagram and I saw the post about it. We're recording the second part of our post here on October 3rd, which is National Kale Day. What is Dr. Drew Ramsey's favorite dish to make that has kale in it? Happy National Kale Day, Drew, and everybody, happy National Kale Day. Does it, it can be any day, and, and some people ask me, what do you do on National Kale Day? And I give them a little bit of a look, like, you know, we tried to make it real intuitive. Eat kale, celebrate kale, share kale, enjoy plants with kale. I love to make a kale chip, and, and I really love homemade kale chip as a way to people for to transform their relationship with greens, because so many people I meet, they need a serious kale consultation, like an emergency kale consultation, because they've had so many people shove kale in front of them and they've eaten these big kale salads and their gut's not used to it and they don't really like it, but they eat it out of obligation. They end up irritable and gassy and they come up to me at events and they're like, Ramsey, <laughs> you know, oh, I tried that kale. And so the reason I like the kale chip is it's a really light and crispy way to eat kale. I like it because the best kale chip is a homemade kale chip. No offense to all the kale chip makers out there, but it really is amazing when you just do a kale, a nice leaf of kale, and a little bit of olive oil, a little bit of sea salt sprinkled on there, bake it 325 for about seven, seven to eight minutes. You'll smell that little, you know, caramelizing golden smell, pull it, put it out, let them sit. Sometimes people put a little too much oil. So, you know, two or three minutes in, look if anybody's sitting in a big, any of the leaves are sitting in a big puddle of oil, give it a little tug. And you can put all kinds of things on there. I've done coconut flakes on there. I've done turmeric. I've done turmeric and coconut flakes. So you can really, you know, make a nice little crispy treat. They're a great thing to take to work. Put a little desiccant or a little um, bag of rice in there to keep them nice and crisp if you're going to make them the day before. And, um, yeah, I would say that that's my favorite way. The most common way I make it is a simple saute. Chop it, olive oil, a little bit of lemon juice. That's it. That's <laughs> sort of, it. I, I do it. Yeah, I do it sort of medium high heat until it turns nice and, uh, you know, that nice bright green. And I pull it on the heat, off the heat, and I serve it. And I, I do that on. I love spaghetti and meatballs. So the only way that I think you can make that real healthy is just dump up a bunch of kale on top of there and, and use a healthier pasta. But that's a good example of tossing that on top of whatever I'm eating. And if kale's not your thing, hey, celebrate with another leafy green. But just a good example of a, a food you can just use a lot in your diet and really increase the nutrient density overall, especially of, of nutrients that are very important for mental health. That's great. And I've also seen that you were talking about kids earlier. I've seen that one of the simplest and easiest ways is if for kids that uh, my friends that have kids, I don't have kids. So we'll see how it holds up when that's my turn. But when they're involved in the kale chip making process, it feels like a chip. They're involved. It's pretty simple to do kale chips. They can be involved through the whole process and pretty much do everything except for taking the pan out of the oven. And it feels like something crunchy and familiar. So it's like one easy way to get kids to try kale if they're not going to eat it in a salad. You know, it's so true. And I learned so much 
from participating in National Kale Day because I got to go to schools with great chefs. And I remember I was at this uh, PS87 in New York City with Chef Bill Telepan, great chef, really wonderful gentleman, wonderful chef. And I got to see, first of all, he's just so excited about food and about plants and about kale. I got to sit in, in, in a cafeteria with hundreds and hundreds of kids, third and fourth and fifth graders for National Kale Day a few years ago. And they got to help. So they got to help make a smoothie. They got to help make a juice. They got to, you know, make a little kale slaw. And they were so excited and so engaged. And I remember somebody had these little kale sprouts. And so we tried kale three or four different ways. And then one of the little kids looked at me and they, they were looking at the kale sprouts. I said, well, do we get to try and eat those little baby ones too? <laughs> and so, you know, it's one of these things that we say, oh, kids, you know, kids, it's hard to give kids plants. And I really find what you say is exactly right. If you help them uh, get involved. And so my kids both are cutting, chopping up vegetables with me. Like the sweetest thing I ever hear is when my daughter said the other day, dad, can we cook some dinner together, please? I was like, because mm. it's, it's a nice time for us. And then they certainly try it and they eat it. And, and the nice thing is if they make it and, and they, they don't like it, you, you can start thinking instantly as we all do as cooks, like, well, how can you make that a way maybe you do like it? So it's a great activity for kids. That and the kale, the kale smoothie. I would say that's the other way to sneak a lot of brain food in. Is I'll I'll pull out all these healthy ingredients, including a kale leaf. And I'll say, all right, the kale leaf needs to go in, and the kefir needs to go in, and you guys can pick whatever else you want as long as you drink it. You know, don't make it too gross. And so then we mix up a custom smoothie, whatever it is. And um, you know, those it's a it's just you know, kids in the kitchen are a lot of fun. Ah, I love that. And also another fun fact. Today is Global Green Smoothie Day, which was started by a researcher from Toronto, my dear friend Ria Mehta. I totally didn't realize it's on the same day as National Kale Day. So today's Global Green Smoothie Day and it's National Kale Day. It's a double whammy. I mean, this is great. That's like another hashtag we can add. And we, we you know, we love, I think it's, it was also Taco Tuesday yesterday. So, you know, taco, you can have a green smoothie and a kale taco. And I mean, it's uh, your life will be full of celebration. Dr. Drew Ramsey, thank you for joining us on the podcast and sharing your wisdom with our listeners. And thank you for being in our docuseries, just everything that you brought to the table, uh, especially in your role firmly in both worlds, being a farmer, being somebody who cares about regenerative agriculture, being somebody who's a steward of the land, being a clinician, working in the traditional system, having great colleagues and individuals that are traditionally seen as Western, more Western medicine. You have your feet firmly planted in both worlds and you're bringing us all together with your balanced approach to talking about brain health and, and how we can all just feel better. So I want to thank you and acknowledge you for all the great work you've done um, to build your career to where it is right now. You know, we're all receivers of the hard work that you've uh, done to get to this place. How, how can our listeners find out more about you? Uh, I know you have an online course and, and your website and your clinic, if you wouldn't just mind sharing. Yeah, thank you, Drew. And th- thank you for those kind words. I mean, it's really, it's uh, it's been a whirlwind of the past, I don't know, uh, seven or eight years. And it's just been really, um, I'm very honored um, to get to share the knowledge and, and by all the folks who um, who reach out and, and uh, who who feel some, uh, some influence and some help from this conversation. If folks want to learn a little bit more about um, our clinic and what we do, so my website is DrewRamseyMD.com. Um, we are a general mental health and psychiatry clinic in uh, in Manhattan, and we do consultations around everything mental health, but mainly um, affective disorders and anxiety, uh, both myself and uh, Samantha Elkreef, who's just a wonderful health coach and uh, therapist and social worker in our clinic. We have an e-course that we created called Eat to Beat Depression, knowing that not everybody can come to New York, and there's a basic set of information in terms of eating for brain health. We just wanted everyone to be able to access that and, and get that information. So um, uh, I'm, I'm sure that we'll, we'll uh, we have uh, a discount code that Drew can mention for everybody's listening. Um, if you want to participate in the course, it's a simple set of videos, really just to, to teach you the fundamentals, but also there's a set of videos around um, creating an action plan for yourself on how you assess your diet and also just getting granular with you of like, okay, leafy grains, what's your relationship with them? What are your challenges with them? And what are you going to do this week? Um, otherwise, my books, um, most recently, Eat Complete is a nutritional psychiatry cookbook. So if you want more information on the individual nutrients, it goes over all 21 of the most important brain health nutrients and then tells you the, the top foods for those. And then it's a cookbook. So the top recipes in the book, for example, getting zinc or getting long chain omega-3 fats. 
I also wrote Fifty Shades of Kale, uh, which is a kale cookbook, uh, and The Happiness Diet, I co-authored with Tyler Graham, which is around how food changed and, and how those changes affect brain health and mental health. And then I'm, I'm Drew Ramsey, MD, on Instagram and on Facebook and on Twitter. And so uh, if folks want to join in on the brain food conversation and overall on the mental health conversation, and Drew, I just, I, I, I um, I thank you and Mark and the team for focusing on mental health and really pushing the functional medicine community to consider and think about mental health. Um, uh, clearly, that's been on Mark's mind um, always in his career and really in some ways started with Ultramind Solution. His, you know, that's when I became aware of him and his work. But it's just so it's so important to our communities and to our country right now more than ever is we're having a conversation about mental health for all of us really to get on board on how do we get the conversation going and most importantly, get people changing their lives to uh, prevent and to treat conditions like depression and anxiety, which just, you know, they just strip us of so much and they cost us so much just uh, beyond the economics of it, just uh, the lost smiles. So thank you all so much for focusing on mental health. There's nothing, nothing could be more important. Uh, thank you for the kind words, and you're exactly right. It's time to host a national conversation. If you like this podcast, go tell somebody about Dr. Drew Ramsey. Check out his work. Share other podcasts that are in that vein. In fact, you just did a really great interview with Max Lugavera, so we'll make sure to link to everything that Dr. Drew Ramsey shared. And if you want more of him, check out his website. Check out the interviews that are out there. Thank you again for being on the podcast. We appreciate you. Thanks so much, Drew. Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Just a reminder, this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast is not, I repeat, it's not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or otherwise qualified medical professional. This podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you're looking for help in your journey, seek out a qualified medical practitioner. If you're looking for a functional medicine practitioner, you can visit ifm.org and search their find a provider database. It's important that you have somebody in your corner that's qualified, that's trained, that's a licensed healthcare practitioner helping you make changes, especially when it comes to your health.